and welcome to another Dishcast. We've had such amazing feedback from last week's with Aurelian Kwayatsu on moderation. Really inspiring to know that we can do really quite high-level stuff here and people really enjoy it and appreciate it. And that's one reason I'm incredibly psyched today to have a writer, philosopher that I followed and, and, and known I mean, a little for many years, going all the way back to, to Harvard, actually. And his name is John Gray. He's a political philosopher, if you haven't heard of him. He retired from academia in 2007 as school professor of European thought at the London School of Economics and is now a regular contributor and lead reviewer at the New Statesman. If you haven't checked out his reviews of the New Statesman, they're really terrific. His many books include Fourth Dawn, The Delusions of Global Capitalism, Black Mass, Apocalyptic Religion, and the Death of Utopia, and Seven Types of Atheism. That's another really fun read. His latest is Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life, and he has just put on its way a magnum opus on Hobbes and the end of liberalism, or what happens after liberalism. He is very hard to characterize in so many different ways, but a wonderful conversationalist and a wonderful thinker. And I just want to let you know, before we get going, of some of the amazing people we have coming up. We have Michael Lind coming on the show. We have Mark, we have James Allison, the Catholic theologian, John Ward, the uh, fundamentalist, fundamentalist, he's an evangelical, I shouldn't say quite fundamentalist, he's an evangelical, he's a wonderful person. He's coming to talk about his experiences of the evangelical movement as it came under the influence of Donald Trump. And John Oberk, the, the vegan proselytizer, is going to try and talk me into giving up meat. And Kathy Young, and we're going to hash out some of the Ukraine stuff and also some of the questions about higher education and how we actually maintain some kind of diversity of thought in our, in our educational structures. But on to today, it's a beautiful day here. And John, it's lovely, lovely to see you again. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. And great to see you again. John, tell me and tell us, you grew up in the north of England, right? But in, in South Shields, which is near Newcastle. South Shields was then a working class industrial town. And I grew up in a working class street community in South Shields, a town which is now and began to be in, I would say, the 60s and 70s, post-industrial. So most of the industries that people I grew up with worked in, which were coal mining, shipbuilding, have gone. But when I grew up in it in the 1950s, I was born in 1948 and 60s, it was still a town of working-class street communities, and I grew up in one, which was meant I grew up in a, a strong and cohesive community which had never heard the word community. <laughs> we were all, which, of course, is definition of a real community. It is. They don't never, talk, it never talked about it. They probably didn't even have the concept of it. But they were in one, and that meant this is not urban folklore. I experienced it. Front doors weren't locked. There was practically zero street crime. There certainly wasn't the random violence that one finds in many urban settings today. It just didn't exist. Of course, in other ways, it would be... It could be restrictive because it was highly cohesive. It wasn't ethnically homogenous. There was a, a long-standing Yemeni community, but it was quite restrictive in the sense that there were common norms. And if you didn't like them or didn't get on with them, the common thing, especially for men, was just to leave. So some would 
joined the Navy, the Merchant Marine. That was very common. And then later on, some of them left via education, which I did. I went to a selective grammar school. And from that, I went on, as others did, to university, in my case, Oxford. But that was a very profoundly formative experience for me because it I now realize what perhaps I didn't realize for a long time fully, that it shaped my beliefs and attitudes and even my philosophical outlook in certain profound ways. Because what happened in the 60s and onwards was that the material deprivations of these communities, outside toilets, no central heating, you bathed in a tinned tub, going to the loo in the middle of the night might be a rather icy experience in the winter. The reforms and initiatives that were used by the Labour government from 1945 to 1950, and then later on by various Labour councils, such as those in South Shields, which were part, I should say, of a, of a, a government and a, a project in, in, in post-war Britain that, had I been adult, I would have strongly supported. My values then and now are still in many ways what are sometimes called old labor values, solidarity and so on. But one feature I noticed then, which had a profound impact on me, was that when the street communities were leveled, raised as they were, demolished, and those who lived in them, including me, were moved out to orbital housing estates on the edge of town, not high-rises, but housing estates, where where there was... Uh, central heating and proper toilets and all the material features of life were substantially improved. They were settings in which the communities that had existed earlier, which were multi-generational, tightly knit, mutually supportive, often rather matriarchal, by the way, despite the way they're often thought of, broke up. And within a year or two of being moved out, or even less than that, there was graffiti, there was street crime, There were all the pathologies of what sociologists call anomic individualism. And that Mm. led me to the following reflections, which stayed with me, although I didn't quite, as I say, realize that they were rooted in my childhood and early youth the way I now do, which is that great advances, which I think is what that Labour government of 1945 to 1950, then later on, brought about are often associated with losses. And this led me to my persistent skepticism, or as my critics would say, my persistent heresy about progress, which is not that progress. I mean, there's a lot of shallow debate about progress. Is it inevitable? Oh, come on, forget it. You know, is it, do we never get to perfection? You know, the key point is that we haven't got a coherent idea of perfection. If you're a believer, I'm not. God can understand the perfect because God is himself or herself or itself perfect. But the way I thought about and think about the error of progress or of faith in progress is not that it's not inevitable or that we can't reach perfection. It's that all great advances, or many of them anyway, many great advances involve some great losses and also the gains that are achieved in great advances are nearly always lost later. And I'm talking here about advances in ethics and politics. In science and technology, there's a much more cumulative pattern. Mm-hmm. The science which is discovered doesn't completely reject the earlier science, and it's not easily lost. Let me give you an example relevant to 
what we'll be talking about later on, I think, about liberalism. If all, if 90% of all the scientists in the world now disappeared in some terrible zombie plague, um, science, I don't think, would be wiped out, and it wouldn't, might not even take very long to start accelerating again. Science is preserved in libraries and now various forms of electronic... electronic in the cloud. In the cloud. It's all still there, and I think the survivors would rebuild it quite quickly, and it would even become exponential, as it now has. So they ha as it now has become. So in science and in technology, there's something like exponential progress, which means exponential advance. If all the liberal societies disappeared in the world, from the world, it wouldn't be like that. It would take much longer or never for them to be reconstituted or reassembled. And this sort of embodies a, an insight of Oakeshott's, which is that political life and traditions of thought and various abstract notions that we have about rights of liberalism and all the rest of it, their roots are not actually in theories. Theories came later. They were what he called abbreviations, their practices. If all the practices vanished of liberalism, and I think they are vanishing pretty quickly, quite a yeah. lot of them actually, they won't necessarily restart. They won't necessarily start by themselves or the, because they're embodied in human beings. And when the human beings are gone, they're not just library books or the cloud. They're human practices, human beings. Once and, they, humans, and humans are, are about, and this, this is a distinction that yeah. Oakeshott made, actually, the distinction between programmatic and dramatic. Yeah. yeah. In other words, that the agency that we mm. humans have, mm. the choices we have, allow us to make choices that are foolish and, and yeah. wrong. Yeah. And, and it gives us a radical freedom both to create and to yeah. destroy. Whereas programmatic stuff, you can just like science, you can actually project into the future the way things are going. Yeah. That's never the case with humans. Right? I entirely, completely agree. So what I took from my experience growing up in these communities, which then disappeared, a whole way of life disappeared in... 15 or 20 years, an entire way of life disappeared. I mean, by the way, that doesn't make me a tragic figure. It makes me a very lucky figure. Because if you think of the 20th century, to be a survivor from a vanished way of life usually means genocide or murder or terrible warfare or something like that. Nothing like that happened to me. My life only got better. But a whole way of life vanished. And that way of life had bads in it, and it had goods in it. And the goods like solidarity, like the absence of street crime, like trust and so on. They, did, they weren't renewed. And furthermore, it was part of an overall, let's call it a political project, which I think was for its time highly beneficial. I mean, my, the opportunities I had, the fact that I didn't have, for example, scurvy, I didn't have dietary deficiency diseases, was partly due to rationing. If you look at the actual statistics in the, seven, in the Second World War, rickets, the disease of dietary disease, declined throughout the country, especially in its poorer parts, because of rationing. In other words, everybody got a little bit, whereas before some people were really... Yeah, really some people didn't get enough of anything. Yeah, so, right. so that's another paradox, if you like, a moral paradox, because from something I regard unfashionably nowadays, I regard the Second World War as a just war, necessary war, even in some ways a noble war. But it was a terrible, a, a terrible cost in human life, as well as being, to my mind, a wholly justified war. But from that great evil with its, that great necessary evil, came good things. So if there hadn't been a Second World War, or if Britain were still had 
lost it, or to my mind, even worse, the worst wouldn't have been if we'd lost it. The worst would have been if we came to a shameful peace. I would have probably, if I'd been born when I was, have grown up in a, a worse world, grown up with stunted development, as countless others did in my my life, in my time. So, But I didn't. I moved on to Oxford and eventually came back to Oxford in 1976, having had a position at the University of Essex in between. and But I came back with these very same thoughts brewing in me, which is that the contemporary faith in progress, which used to animate Marxists or Fabians, and actually, in a terribly perverse way, actually, some fascists and Nazis, it wasn't restricted to liberals by any means. But that now predominantly liberal faith in progress was an error or an illusion or a myth. And unlike some myths, I, I'm not someone who believes human life should be without myths. They're part of the dramatic structure of human action myths, but they can be they can be harmful myths, they can be, and they can be myths which enhance human life. I mean, as a non-Christian, I think many aspects of Christianity, of the Christian story, I think they're all myths, actually, practically, but they have a very good effect in many respects. In fact, we can come on to this later, if you like, I think they gave the world liberalism. I don't think the Enlightenment, yes, gave, the Enlightenment gave the world liberalism. I think, I think, Christianity, Christianity, Christianity yes, and I, Judaism, and they gave the world liberalism. So what you what you kind of are entering and dealing with philosophically is your 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 understanding of the tragedy of these things, the understanding that it is not entirely linear. That that mm. that that progressivism. I mean, progressivism mm. is now certainly in America. This 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 is completely overtaken mm. was left of liberalism. Mm. And what you were saying is that you learned from a very early age that even at its best, mm. even with the Labour government of 1945 to 51, even though the reconstitution, even the better health in the better education, mm. blah, 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 these things don't last, that there are paradoxes in these things. That within them. Paradoxes as well as within gains. them. And they don't right. last. They, they never last. And so well, this I, is incredibly. One pe people would say, "Well, this is an incredibly depressing way of looking at the world." Well, um, pe people say to me, "You know, if I believed that, John, I wouldn't get out of bed." To which my answer is, "Stay in bed. <laughs> Just don't bother. Like, if you need, if you need this kind of nonsense to get out of bed, maybe you're better off staying in bed." But you see, the the thing is, it, I don't think it is depressing because what it leads to you is a, I think, a rather liberating view of politics, which might not be that different from Michael Oakeshott, which is that, and I've written this in many places. Politics is a succession of temporary and partial remedies for recurring human evils. So rather than getting hung up on one particular project or fashion or doctrine, worse still, ideology, you should look at the biggest evils of your time and what can be done about them. But they changed. And so later on, by the mid-70s, but from the early to the mid-70s, I began to conclude that the post-war settlement which Labour had brought in in Britain, which had many virtues, National Health Service, it's in trouble now, but I still think, by the way, Bernie Sanders is right when he says we should build on what we've got in Britain and not try to import American or some other type of medical system. But I began to conclude that that was, it was history, it was breaking down. It was breaking down mm -hmm. because the old industries were going, it almost almost gone by then. The unions, I thought, at that time were too strong. They may now be too weak. It's 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Yeah. I first involved myself with the, the, the pre-Thatcherite think tanks. I first got to know, first met Thatcher, I think in 1973 or four, before she mm -hmm. was leader of the Conservative Party. 
mm-hmm. when she was a sort of 1975 is when she became leader of the Conservative Party. She was a kind of blank sheet in some ways. She had certain mm-hmm. instincts, but completely conventional, you know, Tory and otherwise. Then she sort of blossomed and became to 1975, and then between 1975 and 1979, when she came to power, she adopted the uh, views she did adopt, and much less doctrinaire, by the way, than the people who taught her them, because she always right. remained, she always remained yes. a, a politician. So when that people... was a, that was a kind of fevered time, wasn't it? I mean, it was, there was a lot oh, of yes. intellectual energy. Tremendous. Behind, Tremendous. behind the beginnings of neoliberalism, really, you could say that, when it was quite clear that the post-war settlement was collapsing, wasn't yes. clear what, what, would would, what would replace it. Yeah. It was this person. And you were part of that mix, right? You, you, yes, I was. You were part of the people thinking it's time to stir things up and to, and to, and to re-energize yes, the tradition of British liberty in particular. Yes. You know, some, tell us a little bit about that era, because now people look at it and they see this as a terrible, terrible terrible mistake. And I, of course, I, I think you have to understand it in context, in the mm. particular context of its time, mm. in the particular problems that it was attempting to suggest, as opposed to some eternal doctrine that is forever true about human affairs. That's abso- well, look, and, it's absolutely right, uh, uh, Andrew. You see, let's think about that time, just a few, a few minor details. There was communism then. There was the Soviet Union, and there was the still essentially Maoist, China. I was a strong anti-communist, like, by the way, nearly all the old Labour people. Yeah, Nye Bevan, all those people hated the commies. I hated, absolutely loathed them. They were the high-spending defence. They were NATO mongers. They were, they were, uh, they were working class British patriots, right? I I was one of them. I was one of them. Right. And so I didn't need any lessons on communism from some product of Winchester or or some Winchester like, for American listeners is, it's a is public an English school, public school, i.e., a private school. It's so hard to a very expensive, constantly. a very expensive private school, and produce. yes, well, they 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 like James Milne, right? They they it takes the really top private schools to produce the really hardcore Marxists. Yes, yes, yes. yes. By the way, in my first university job, which was at the University of Essex in nineteen seventy three to 1976, I could tell as soon as they opened their mouths which of the other students, where they were on the left. They were all on the left. If they had if they had sort of relative, if they had very plummy accents, they were invariably ultra-Trotskyists or anarchists. If they had middle class or lower middle class, hardly any of them had working class, but they were accents, they'd be communists. So perversely at that time, I rather liked the communists because they were... At least they had, they'd, had, they'd, they'd also, I can also tell whether they carried briefcases. The communists carried briefcases. The, the ultra trots and the, they would be smoking cheroots. Or, or but in had, those days, people like you, and to some extent, young little whippersnappers like me who were starting to read the mm. press and think about the world, you were really out there at the time mm. in terms of arguing for reducing the power and control of the, the state, mm. of the government, mm. and indeed of having a more muscular and clear foreign policy with mm. respect to communism. Mm. What, at what point in the next period of time mm. did you begin to rethink? Did you think, well, maybe we've gone... What was the point where you thought, well, now this has run its course? We've actually addressed mm. some of the, the, well, the I key think it's pre- issues. It's pretty much on record from about 87. I, be, I felt a bit like being a great student of, of Russia. I felt a bit like quite different, and I certainly didn't suffer his, his fate. But I felt a bit like Bukharin 
making cryptic observations of oblique descent. And then I, <laughs> and then I, I started writing things. I published a pamphlet through a right-wing think tank, which I argued one of the ultimate heresies at that time was to argue for state support for the arts. I pointed out that when Hayek talked about the minimum state, he meant, he meant, and this is true, by the way, he meant law and order of the police and the state opera. He was, <laughs> he was, he was, he was Viennese, you know, I mean, so for him, the, the idea that the state would be really a tiny minimum state with nothing but justice and love was unthinkable. But I published this through them, and to give them credit, they did publish it. They did publish. Who it. was this? Which which Institute was... of Economic Affairs? They oh, were the okay, ones. The they were recently behind behind Liz Truss in her abortive oh, right. few weeks yes. of, as as prime minister. They did publish it, but they hated it. So by about that time, I was by about eighty seven, eighty eight. I was already thinking. Look, what I had against it, and this came out when I started attacking Fukuyama, which I did from October 1989 onwards. In my book of collected essays, Grey's Anatomy, I reprinted a piece I wrote for the National Review, the conservative magazine, which was an attack on Fukuyama. And, and so I began to attack Fukuyama because I thought that what had happened is that this Thatcherite movement in Britain and the Reaganite women in, in America had turned into a kind of inverted Marxism. It had become a universal doctrine, not what it originally was, which was a particular response to a set of conditions at a particular historical juncture. And there's one big thing that I really detest about, so to speak, big political ideas and big political theories is their indifference or even contempt for the casualties. Mm -hmm. And this, is, this, of course, is a great thing about in, in, in Marx, in communism, at least, Soviet communism. They had what they called, think of the, the former persons, they called them who could be Aristos, but they could also be small cobblers or they could be obscure writers. But people who didn't fit into the new society were called former persons. And being former persons, they could be deprived of civic rights, which they were. And they could also be have reduced or non-existent ration cards, which meant that they died. Now, nothing like that happened in Britain. But I did see that emerging on the on the right, which is that the people in the north where I come from and in working class communities who were, so to speak, stubbornly resistant to progress. Stubbornly, they were Luddites, they were. They were stubbornly resistant to all that was good. They really didn't deserve any, according to this view, any, any sympathy, any compassion, any, any, any empathy. They deserved just to shut up and go away. And of course, that reemerged with Hillary Clinton in America or recently with her deplorables. That's to say, you're a member of a dying, declining, despairing working class community somewhere, which is in a demonic industry like mining, coal mining or something. And for some reason, you, you just persist in hanging around. You know, worse still, you persist in not seeing your own disappearance as, as benign. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that attitude, which started to emerge among some of the Thatcherites, when Thatcherism turned into, when it became Thatcherism instead of just Thatcher, when it turned into upside-down Marxism, I began to positively dislike and even detest. And by the way, on Fukuyama, though, you probably know, when she was explained, not by me, I did have a number of conversations, even some on ideas with her, but this wasn't one of them. When she was explained what... Thatcher? Oh, I'm talking about Thatcher. When she was explained what Fukuyama said, she said, end of history. Beginning of nonsense, because whatever else she may have done, and she was getting pretty, 
by by 89, by 90, and then when she was top, she was getting, as anyone who's been in power for that long does, I believe, she was getting pretty immune to criticism. But she still thought the Fukuyama idea of history ending was complete bollocks. And said said so quite quite. Except you know to be to be to be fair to Frank, yeah, uh, who's also been on the discast. I might say I had a recent uh, dis- uh, t- t- conversation with him in public in London. It went very well. We disagreed. Yeah, he's, still, he's a great guy. Yeah, I like but him. I think to some extent the the end of history in the Last Man is a much more complicated. I agree. Yeah, than, I agree. And, and it 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 has lots of provisos in it. And but mm. but it's understanding that somehow. A neoliberal liberal democracy is it that, that we've now yeah. arrived at the sort of core, least worst mm. option imaginable, and it was going to spread everywhere. Mm. Obviously, and I remember those days. Mm. Uh, I remember the nineties, mm. the sense of mm. of rolling. I mean, and again, the the extraordinary euphoria after mm. the end of the Cold War. Mm. Not you see these ideas as I, as a kid growing up. These free market ideas, this small state, mm. the anti-communist, it had such success, mm. not only in transforming the United Kingdom, but also in changing the world in Eastern mm. Europe. We began, to, we began to get high on our own fumes and began to see things that were not necessarily the case and miss complications and nuances that were going on. And, of course, the enormous, I always say, that, that neoliberalism is a victim of its own success. To some extent, I, I, although... Right from the start, almost, there were one or two voices. I mean, George Bush Sr., who'd seen action in war, unlike his son, and unlike most people of a later generation, he said around about that time, I think it was in 1990 or 1989 even, he said, this is a great advance for freedom. This is a great human advance. I agreed with that. I still agree with it, even though we've now got put in. But he said... It'll unfreeze a lot of conflicts. There'll be terrible difficulties. It'll all be very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Now, I found that a, a profound observation, particularly since I was still going to America quite a lot in those days. I mean, for 16 consecutive years, I spent several months a year in America. So at that time, I knew America pretty well, and the West Coast, East Coast, Midwest, all over. And what I found in Washington at that time was people saying, people defunding foreign policy. You don't need it anymore. To me, this was straight out of UNESCO, the, the theater of the absurd. So the world's going to become, going to be perpetual peace like country. Is that what's for, you really think that? You don't see that there are all these partly frozen or even alive. Uh, in fact, this is what I wrote in the piece I, I did for the National Review. I said, you know, there are ethnic disputes. There are resource wars. There are religious and sectarian disputes. There'll be secret diplomacies. There'll be, they're all still there. And they're all going to be more important. They're all going to be more important than they've been in this slightly, un- slightly abnormal bi- binary conflict between in the Cold War, which was, in fact, and this is a very important point, a conflict between two Enlightenment ideologies. The end of one of them, the effective end of communism as an ideology, meant a period of delirium among the liberals, followed by disintegration. And that's why I, I remember remembering a wonderful line from Samuel Beck, you know, talk about the end of history, he says, the end again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and nowadays, I, I'm inclined to, when I talk to Frank, lovely guy, by the way, and like you, I, I enjoy talking to, you know, I remember the, somebody described Waiting for Godot as a play in which nothing happened twice. 
<laughs> and now I think, you know, he, he was saying when I was talking to him in London, he was saying, well, now we have it. We really have it. Finally, we've got it. We've got the end of it. It's happening now because the West is unified against, again, Putin in Ukraine. Well, how long did that last? A fortnight? Three weeks? A month? Two months? The vast social global south, India, South Africa, Brazil, they don't share this view. Uh, and even in Europe, Hungary, the Germans are extremely unreliable on this issue, very uh, yeah. shifty and duplicitous on this issue, as is France. So there actually isn't a reunification of the, of, of, of the before West. We, before we get Go to on. that, John, let's, let's talk about that the then in response to these failures of neoliberalism, mm. as we could see, you have what seems to be a real turn in the mid-20-teens towards populism, both in mm. the United States and Europe and and in, in the United Kingdom, of course, you have Brexit, mm. you have Trump. Now, tell me your take on the Brexit and Trump. Obviously, they're very distinctive, and I, mm. I don't want to mm. conflate them. But uh, tell me how you confronted them. What are you made of them when they well, grew into this space that had been vacated, essentially, by the established parties? Let me begin by talking about the word populism. Populism is a term liberals, liberals use to describe the political blowback against the social disruption that their policies have created. <laughs> That's what populism is, basically. It's, it, it, at yes. least now, I mean, true people have talked about populism in the 30s and before, but the populism you and I are talking about, Andrew, is a populism of blowback against the social disruption that liberal policies have pursued. And by liberal policies here, I mean policies according to which you should never protect a declining industry because that's very inefficient. Mass immigration is tremendously efficient because it brings in people who do the same jobs for less money. You should opening up all aspects of life in society to markets is very good. So things that were to some extent outside of markets, which when I grew up, they went to Oxford and Cambridge, they weren't in any it wasn't marketized to any significant extent. They had endowments and various things, but it wasn't marketized in any... There were non-market institutions in the Britain I grew up in, just as there were in Victorian times and Edwardian times. In fact, even in the height of laissez-faire, there were strong non-market institutions. And yet, in the liberalism, the hyper-liberalism, the, the neoliberalism, whatever that, took charge in the post-Cold War era as communism then collapsed. There was nothing wrong in, nothing self-defeating and in extending market processes and market exchange to every aspect of life. And those who objected to that or who were displaced by it were wimps or retrograde or deplorables or, at any rate, people you shouldn't listen to. Luddites, essentially. Luddites, essentially. Protectionists. Protectionists. Isolationists. Isolationists. And all the words that are used yeah. to describe that reaction. So, so that was my that was my response then, as it is still now. So I didn't regard. You see, what if these liberals? They wouldn't, of course, ever accept. I don't think even to this day they understand how they produced the populism they that that produced these effects. That they they don't understand it. So what what did was it the devil? I mean, where did right. it come from? Well, I think they do actually at some level, hmm. there is a belief that ordinary people are actually generally wicked and evil and generally and stupid and, and stupid. horrible and stupid as well. And therefore, yeah. Yeah. if you let them get yeah. any real direct power, God knows what will happen. I um, completely agree, which is why in my country and throughout parts of you, they favored the European Union because it's only uh, incidentally or inadvertently democratic. 
it has very attenuated democratic processes and practices. And no, of course, it's, it's, a, it's an enormous, you know, bureaucratic elite yeah. making people's lives better for them. <laughs> whether, or and, not they, whether or not they want it or accept it. Exactly. So, yes. you see, but that's another feature of the liberalism, which was so horrified by populism that I dislike. Slightly, on a slightly different tack, but it's sort of interesting here. The claim to superior intelligence of the anti-populist liberals should be questioned to some extent. I mean, take a kind of perhaps obvious example. I will remember that occasion of the United Nations. You can see it on video when Trump was saying that Germany, which all British pro-Europeans admired as an infinitely, incomparably superior social organization. I mean, post-war Germany, the Germany of social of, of Merkel and so on. We were saying that Germany was making a terrible mistake and making itself dependent on Russian energy. And the camera switched to one side and you saw all these German diplomats, the cream of European diplomacy, sniggering. But they must be laughing themselves half to death now, mustn't they? Because Trump was right. They were wrong. He was pointing out in his blunt, slightly coarse and vulgar way, a fundamental truth, which is a fundamental error. Don't make yourself critically dependent on a power a, a dictatorial power whose future behavior you can't predict. Don't make the business plan for your entire country depend on cheap energy. And don't, while you're doing this, by the way, don't start closing down all the nuclear power and all the coal mines as well, because you'll be left in a terrible bind if that dictatorial country decides to use it, the energy, the leverage, energy in a literal sense, as leverage over you later on. So, I mean, men, what, what the... He's also, he's also, let me just, another yeah, yeah. thing that I felt, he's also, his defense of borders, mm. just the fact that a country has to have well-established yeah. and con if you don't have a border, you don't have a country, yeah. was his, again, I, I can't tell you the number of, mock, number of mm. pieces mocking that simplicity. Mm. However, we are currently, the Biden administration came in, let's let it, basically let it rip mm. this horrible, authoritarian, nasty. And there was plenty of stuff that was authoritarian, nasty, but we'll, 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 we'll let that. And now they're dealing with a mass migration. And we've also suddenly discovered that in that mass migration, we now have a vast horde of child laborers mm. smuggled into the country. It is, and they will not concede well, that, the, they, that they, they fucked up on the, on the, mm. on the mass migration stuff, that, they, that in fact, it does matter that whether a country, whether the people in a country feel that their own country is properly defined. Well, I don't think you can have a, a functioning liberal society or a functioning social democracy without a degree of mutual solidarity. And if you have no borders or if you have borders that are unpoliced, it's very difficult to sustain that. But remember, these, these liberal rationalists, are, they display what, I mean, the medievals fell short in some ways, but in other ways, the medieval think as writers were rather profound. They, they display what's called invincible ignorance. Liberal rationalists are invincibly ignorant of actual facts in the real world because they find those facts morally offensive. I love this recent example in which, in which the people that said, oh, we've had this COVID hmm. outbreak in the city where the Wuhan Institute for Studying that virus isn't coronavirus is happening. Yeah. That's a strange coincidence. I Pure wonder coincidence. if it could possibly be. 
party would be allowed. And of course, they were not, it wasn't just said, well, that's, I guess that could be a possibility. No, it was like, you are racist Absolutely. for thinking that. Absolutely. So you anyone, any, so, so the basic idea is if, if a fact is somehow unappetizing or morally offensive to them, then anyone who draws attention to that fact is evil and malignant and does it out of sheer devilment, which shows actually, interestingly enough, because, I mean, one of the things about Enlightenment thought is that evil was a kind of myth. They believe in evil, all right, as long as it's the evil of other people. I mean, the essential atmosphere, the essential point of Enlightenment thought is that there isn't evil, there's just error. They're just people make mistakes and they learn from it. Well, we learn from these very liberal rationalists. They don't learn from 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 their mistakes, but I think the point about the war... other the other example here, yeah. I don't want to just because you got go on. me on a roll here, is is the notion that, for example, family structure doesn't matter. Yes, in terms of the future of of of, of people yeah. in, and the potential they have. Yeah, and when I bring up the fact that if you look at Asian Americans and African Americans, yeah. and you see the rate of stable homes, that will is a hugely explanatory factor for what's going wrong. Mm-hmm. Now. The response to that is no, not you're wrong because this. It is you're a racist. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all been debunked. You're a liar. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's actually. I mean. Or, yeah. Or it's or you don't. You're ignoring white supremacy. This thing that somehow exists in. Oh, you're embodying it. Or you're. Well, embod- I, I, yeah, I embody it by waking up every morning. But that was, by the way, another. Like, that was, by the way, another reason why I supported Brexit. And why, by the way, I... Let's get to that. Let's get to that. Because you, here you are, you've sort of become more acceptable and, you know, you're more, you critique neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Some of these liberals are going to think, oh, and then here you go. Yeah. You back Brexit, for God's sake. And now that was the most socially offensive, politically outrageous, unthinkable act. Now you're a leading person with, with a one of the greatest minds of your, my view yeah. of your generation, and you say we're for it. Now, what? tell me about that decision, and what was the blowback when you got that? What was that like? Well, it was, first of all, I thought two things, and I did a, before Brexit, I think it was in 2013, I did a public conversation with Harper's Magazine, which is on YouTube. And in that, I said, I think there will be a, a referendum on Brexit, and I think the leave section will win. And people looked at me as if I'd lost my mind. But it wasn't merely that I predicted it. I supported leaving. And one of, and later on, I even did. There are still, like, although a liberal civilization has vanished, I think there are still enclaves of free expression like you and me now, and also parts of the BBC. I gave talks on the BBC around the time of Brexit up to into it and then after, in which I said one of the reasons I supported it is that I dislike the demonization of ordinary people who don't support uncontrolled migration, not because they're racist, but because it affects the job market, for example. It affects resources and in their communities, large scale. By the way, Bernie Sanders at one point said this as well in America. He got hammered for that too, as I remember. Large-scale, continuous immigration from poorer countries has a a depressing impact on incomes and and wages. By the way, economic theory, which in every other respect these liberals support, they would say, no, it doesn't. Just an exception. I know, it is strange how they insist upon that. No, it doesn't. This is just a myth. 
Well, it did and it, and it does. The reasons that working people in Britain and America and elsewhere don't want mass immigration have little to do with racism, although they can be exploited for racist purposes. And so I found it insulting and offensive as well as untrue of the people I'd grown up with and with whom I'm still in contact and who did vote for Brexit heavily in the North, that they did so because they were racist. They're not racist. They're compared with most people in the world. They're pretty tolerant, not only on issues of race, but also on issues of gender and sexuality as well. They're, they're old it, it, it takes all sorts to make a world. So that's the, the way they think about it and talk about it. And that's exactly And there's, there's now it's a queer as folk. Now it's a queer as folk, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, so issues like gay marriage are settled right. in Britain. Yeah, I mean, they're settled in the United States, essentially. Yeah. 70% support marriage equality, which suggests to me that when you put forward a proposal or a forum mm. that is not rooted in some great ideology, but simply says, as I tried to make the yeah. argument I made, which is we have this emergent phenomenon in our society. We're changing. These mm. people deserve to be integrated. How do we best do that? Yeah. Let's use an existing institution, yeah. fold them into the family, Let's do this with the yeah. least disruption. See, this as is completely possible. consistent with your other views about the family. Yes, it's, it an, is. it's an application of them, actually. Of course it is. Of course <laughs> so it's, it is. I think, as you put it somewhere, it was a radical argument, but also a conservative argument at the same time. And some Absolutely. of mine, some of mine had been like that. So you see, people who knew I was a Thatcherite were not surprised that I'd been a Thatcherite. Were not surprised when I supported Brexit. But when I then began to say, as I have been for the last couple of years or so. This is the wrong Brexit. It's a disastrous Brexit because the Brexit people voted for was not a free market Brexit. They didn't vote for Brexit because they wanted a labor market reform. There's not much call for Ayn Rand in Newcastle. There's not, <laughs> not much call for Friedrich Hayek in Blythe. That wasn't why they voted. That wasn't why they voted for Brexit. They voted for Brexit actually because they wanted some shelter from the extreme the excesses, the disruptions of globalization. So the Brexit they wanted was the opposite of one that they, that they then, I wouldn't say got, because the project has been pretty well aborted now, I think. doesn't mean we're going to go back in, because there's no support, there's very little support, except in Westminster, except in some of the civil service, for going back in, there's very little. Uh, but the support for what Rishi Sunak has just done, which is to somehow reduce the frictions in Northern Ireland, if that works, if it goes through, Plenty of support for that. If he does it, it'll be an achievement. But there's no support for going back in. But but the people have lost interest in it now. They think the project is aborted, which I which I which I share their view on that. But I supported it. Not well, you say the project is aborted. What aspect of the project is well, aborted? Well, see, if you were going not to... during the you saw the Liz Truss thing where they were going to create Singapore on Thames or whatever they well, were. Well, but you see, that's to. another that went down in flames very quickly. Yeah, but that's another misunderstanding because Singapore, I've well, of course, yes, yeah, Singapore is on Singapore is not <laughs> Singapore. the freest country on earth. <laughs> well, it's not just freedom; it's not free market. It's very dirigiste. Housing is owned by the state; it's controlled by right. the state. Right. Where, right. where you they try to break up ethnically homogenous areas because they don't want too much ethnic strife. It's a highly dirigiste state, actually. So. Anyone who says we want, they either want or don't want Singapore on Thames is, doesn't understand. But what I mean by saying the project was aborted is it wasn't enough to leave when we did, which, by the way, of course, was a, a, mis a mistake. The conservatives, the common conservatives, 
were just wrong about the referendum. They didn't want to leave. They were adamantly opposed to leaving. The civil service didn't want to leave. It was nearly all, all opposed. But we did leave. But if you do leave, it only makes sense to leave the single market, to leave this huge market, this, and give up frictionless trade. It only makes sense. If you do lots of other things, like exploit regulatory divergence, do the things you couldn't do before because the European, the rules of Europe just stopped you doing them. Protect certain industries. Subsidize certain industries which are being undercut by China and, and so on and so forth. You'd have to do lots of things like that to make the post-Brexit economy work. None of them would be on. All, that could be on the right or the left. Corbyn absolutely could put could fund industries. The Tories could deregulate yeah. places where they wouldn't previously have been could able be both. to deregulate. Oh, yeah, yeah. By the way, just one other thing. Another thing I disliked about the, the Brexit debate. I mean, I was lucky because I had some venues the, to, to, to ventilate my discontents through, which was partly the BBC and partly the New States. But one of the things I disliked is the airbrushing of an entire moderate left-wing Eurosceptic tradition. Going back mm-hmm. to Hugh Gateskill, complete mm-hmm. Eurosceptic. Going back to Barbara, people, Barbara Castle, Barbara Castle, Peter Shaw. Yes, there was a, there was there was a whole Michael Foot, I think. Yeah, Michael Foot. Well, Michael Foot was a, a more a, left a, on the far left. left, but a whole tradition, not Corbynites, but a whole tradition of social democratic thinkers were strongly Eurosceptic for decades, and with good reason. I mean, even I, I dislike it. I dislike it, but yeah, I'm seeing it as a, a usurpation of national sovereignty in favor of a, a, a continent-wide free market, right? I mean, that's you, one of the reasons. The, the, you had a, a whole generation of social democrats and socialists who said, you can't build socialism or social democracy in the European Union. It's structured to prevent it. <laughs> it's structured to create a continent-wide free market in capital and labor. That's not socialism. That's, I mean, it's kind of obvious in a way. Now, right. if you said if, if if that whole tradition was airbrushed, like our Trotsky out of the Stalinist pictures, remember those wonderful pictures, mm-hmm. early pictures? Mm-hmm. I've got a, there's a whole volume of them, by the way. You should look at that. I'll mention it later. A whole collection of them, which Trotsky's there as he was. Then two years later, he's Done. not there. He's still alive somewhere, you know, in Turkey or then. He's not in the picture anymore. So that was all airbrushed out. And if you were a supporter of Brexit, you were right wing, you were practically a fascist. So that whole tradition was airbrushed out. So, I mean, I argued by then, I was arguing as much from a social democratic tradition as I was from a, from a Thatcherite or sovereignty position. I was saying, if you want social democracy, you can't get it. It's been built to prevent that happening. So you've got to, you've got to leave. We did leave. I, I wasn't surprised that we, leave, that we left. It was a deep psychic trauma to the liberals. It was. I, I mean, I recall. I mean, I... Some of them fell down, literally, wept. Oh, well, you can imagine what it was like the day after Trump was, it was elected. The same. I was, I, was, I was in New York a couple of weeks afterwards, and it's the first time I've lived through a mass psychosis because the liberals there, it was the Russians. It was the yeah. Russians who did it. Now, they might have had a little... I think it's now known, actually, that they did have a little tiny bit of... They did. They tried. They tried. But it wasn't the Russians. No, of course it wasn't. Yeah. It was Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it was Hillary Clinton, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so they all went mad, but they went mad. The cognitive dissonance in their, in their madness was that they didn't see this as a, an indirect consequence, an unintended consequence of their own policies. They couldn't see that the 
dislocated communities and dislocated individuals, the vast wastelander, disposable former persons, they graded, still had the vote, still had the vote, and would still come out and exercise it for Trump. And I mean, I read a lot of the accounts of the Trump voters. Many of them, they were asked, do you trust them? Sure not, of course not, in those days. But hell, who am I going to vote for? Give it a roll. He was a, a weapon that they yeah. used yeah. to bludgeon the people that were not listening to them. Yeah, and it was the only... Um, well, that's another way of putting it, which is that, in a way, you could say that kind of populism then was the voice of the voiceless. And the key issues were mass migration, which they wanted to stop. Yes. Free trade, which they wanted to control. Mit mitigate better. or control, yeah. And also in this country, particular, as kind of cultural revolution from above, mm. In which we were going to actually re redefine words, create a whole new language, yeah. talk in ways that ordinary people wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. The assumption of which was that ordinary white working class Americans were essentially the problem in America. Mm -hmm. uh, See that, and I, that I mentioned one thing about which is that some people on the right, including some that I respect, say it's very like communism. They say that there was a relentless struggle over the use of language in communism how to talk about things. All the streets got different names and all the cities got different names and so on and so forth. But there is a difference, a fundamental difference. Communism, certainly throughout Eastern Europe and even in Russia itself, was imposed by a dictatorial state. The deep evil of the, or the deep folly of this phenomenon in the West and in America and to some extent in Britain as well, is it's not imposed by the state. It's imposed by civil society on itself. That's the, and, it's, and particularly you've written about this, Andrew. It's imposed, it comes from the campus. You know, Hobbes in this, I've written it down if I can read it out because I might not get it right. Hobbes has this, one, this wonderful sentence from Behemoth. The universities have been to the nation as the wooden horse was to the Trojans. Hmm. Isn't that great? Hmm. <laughs> That's back then, seventeenth century. And it, but it's, this is also, you know, one of the. I think one of the things about America, in particular, mm. is that in fact it likes organizing its own moral crusades against itself mm. without the government being involved at all. I mean, yeah. in, it doesn't, in need, the, doesn't need the government. It doesn't need the no. government. No, mm. no. Although it affects the government too, it because does, eventually yeah. they get there and they they put all their yeah. Yeah. DEI stuff through there as mm. well. They're, the core principle behind this is that society is essentially a, a system of structures of oppression mm. on grounds of identity, mm. which is the core truth of everything, mm. the basis upon mm. which everything else. Mm. So liberalism itself is merely a mask to, mm. to hide yeah. the actual brutal oppression. Now, I look at America, and I, 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 I've lived here most of my life now, mm. and... Um, if this is a, if this if this place in having read any history or been anywhere is 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 it simply is at core a system of oppressions then I I really I I I, I really don't know what fucking world you're in whether you have any idea of what oppression actually means yeah, yeah. whether you have elevated these needs to mm. such an extraordinary extent that even if you're living in bliss you're oppressed beyond measure and and, and the tyranny of and, bliss the tyranny of bliss it's terrible it's terrible we're sitting yeah. here 
comfortable, wealthy, respected. We can, you know, uh, but no, we're we're under assault by the enemies of queer. But there's also the, but, there's, but there's also the other, which is that if if liberal societies are like that, and all human societies have been like that, because they say feudal society was like that, and archaic society was like that. What kind of society could there be which was not like that? In other words, what is the practical, realizable goal? If 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 the structures of oppression are so deep seated that they go all the way down in language, they all all the way down in thinking, that they're tacit and not expressed, that the people who are oppressed don't realize they're oppressed, and the people who are oppressing might not even know they're oppressing. If that's all true, if it was all true, then what would a society be like which was not like that? It's even worse than communism because although it was impossible communism, there's some kind of vague notion of what it would involve of socialized industry and people, I mean, you know, being free of compulsory labor and wage labor. some kind of. But what would this be like? There's no conception of it. It's just that this is all bad. This is I think all it you. would be very, very elaborate. I mean, it's funny because one of them was once asked, this one of the, the, the man called Ibram X. Kendi, a made-up name, by the way, obviously. He, he, he was once, he once said, well, this is what I do. I would amend the Constitution so we would have an unelected body mm. that would be able to examine every single interaction in the society, <laughs> every output, every job, and correct it so that it adequately and evenly represented the demographics of the environment in which it took place and or actually advance those that are deemed at the bottom of the oppression scale up further up the scale. So it would be a totalitarian society. Yes. It would be required yes. controlling human interaction at the most basic level. And what do we know um, about totalitarian societies? If, which if is we, wonderful, aren't they? They're the best places to live. Yeah, well, that's, but they're also, they're never corrupt, are they? No, no, no. They're the sea green and corruptibles. I mean, the, the corruption that exists now in Russia, which is profound, extends into the armed forces and one of the reasons they're doing so badly that they're doing that a lot of the equipment has been, was being stolen went right back into the communist period. I mean, the co communist societies actually functioned only because they were corrupt. But not only that, but the, the, the corruption was on such a scale that even under communism, the differentials between different layers in the army that were much higher than in many parts of the West at that time. So we know from history, including 20th century history, that totalitarian societies quickly, almost immediately, become deeply corrupt. Oh, you know, why, why won't this be, why won't, you see, if you say that, they say, well, that kind of nihilistic pessimism is exactly what holds us back. It's simply, it's simply a confident prediction as to what would happen. If you put anyone in the position that the person you quoted, if there were such a, an unelected dictatorial group, it would behave like every other such group has behaved in history. Why? Because it would be made up of human beings. And they would have family. They would have children. And those children they would give preference to over other children. And it's, elite would form... An elite would you, form over a generation or less, which would attempt to reproduce itself, and you'd soon have. As it has. It, you look at you look at you look at Harvard. Yes, we've had like a few decades of affirmative action, mm. and we're told that they are they are attempting to find the most diverse, blah blah blah, inclusive campus. 
essentially what they, when you actually drill down and see what they're doing, they're doing some of the crudest racist stereotyping of Asian students to keep them out. They are, the, the, the white students are, are incredibly tilted towards legacy, the sons and daughters of people who've gone there. The, the other people well, there... Well, you want the best people, don't you? Well, of course. <laughs> the other people there are like Potemkin students. Yes. Representing the right demographics. Yes. Yes, they can probably get... the But that's the point of them. So you've already completely poisoned the integrity of the academic well, process. Well, there's, there's, there's also a theory of this, which explains at least part of it, I think, by a Russian-American sociologist called Turchin, the theory of the overproduction of elites. Right. Surplus yeah. elites. Thousands and tens of thousands of essentially unemployable lawyers, humanities students, and tens and tens of thousands of them. And the theory is that, which I think there's a, a lot to, 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 in support of it, is that by the competition that this oversupply of would-be elites creates is partly expressed in competitive virtue, competitive ideological virtue. The, the, those who are more ideologically sound than others, according to the ever-shifting line, which is like the Soviet Union, you could get it badly wrong. Last week's line might be different from next week's yes. line. But it's expressed through this essentially, essentially, and I, I think there's a lot in this, essentially the ultra-liberal or woke phenomenon, it's really best analyzed as a class war in which large parts of society are excluded from the benefits of higher education. But those that get into it are struggling desperately among themselves for the best positions, because there are fewer and fewer, actually, tenure positions in the law, more and more casualization of academic labor and so on, probably because the whole university sector is too big and partly because there's too much humanities studies. If you look at comparative, I mean, if you look at comparative systems in China, they're producing dozens of times more engineers and scientists. And science there is not challenged, confined, or attacked on work grounds. It's just science. By the way, they're also an interesting thing. It's a terrible regime, by the way, in many, many ways. I've written about this, about the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and, and others in many places, and Hong Kong too. But it's also a country where Western classical, Western classics from uh, the ancient world are taught in their own languages, in the original languages, Latin, right. Latin and Greek. And it also has lots and lots of Western classical orchestras. And there's the sort of, when you say this to me, there's a kind of racist response. They say, ah, well, they're just copying, are they? Have you actually listened to this I've done? I'm not an expert on music, but I've listened to piano concertos played by really good Chinese. They're imaginative. They're creative. They're witty. But humorous. also, you would Im you would imagine a success. In other words, in other words, in other words. By the way, this leads to an interesting thought. Maybe the residue of Western civilization will survive outside the West, and only outside the West. Maybe the traces of it, the best bits of it, perhaps classical music, classical tragic drama, might survive when the West has really been taken over by barbarians. It's no longer the West. It's an interesting thought. It is, and and. And it's interesting to me that while the American Western Ivy League and elite colleges 
are worried about Aristotle being a white man yeah. or worried about teaching the great works of Western civilization mm. because of its whiteness, mm. that other civilizations and societies are understanding these works as great insights into the human condition. Of universal, value, of, universal of universal value. Of universal value. That's yes. the other thing that's happened. And you're right. The, the, the way in which the elite now, the, the elite classes, the overproduced elite classes succeed is by, in this rather Stasi-like way, mm. is accusing others in their midst of not being sufficient. By denunciation. Uh, by denunciation. Yes. Well, one I mean, of the, they just, yeah, they actually sat outside the New York Times, yeah. obviously only a couple of weeks ago, and, and, put out a list of denounce, denounce people we denounce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These people that wrote actual fact-driven, nuanced pieces about child transition, yeah. they are to be denounced. Yeah. This is, and, and so everyone then lives in fear of being canceled mm-hmm. or, or having their job destroyed. Mm-hmm. My, my question is, John, mm-hmm. this, you're right. This is, this is coming in part from the intellectual tradition, critical theory and so on in the universities is also coming from the zeal of the younger generation that this mm. is the society they want to live in they really want to live in this well they think they want society. to well they, they soon find out that they, it's a pretty horrifying place to live in but i can't in response to this mm. you're beginning to see in the united kingdom and in the u.s with sadness and to some extent the sunak and the tories are looking at this mm. Attempts to discipline, as it were, higher education, or when it's publicly funded, to insist on whether it be diversity of thinkers. In other words, my, my, I, if a, if a publicly funded university is only teaching far left mm. ideology, which mm. is not far off what the reality is, then it does seem to me the government might have some capacity to create an institute within it that would be some sort of antibody to it to create more diversity of thought. Or do you take the DeSantis view and just? fuck with these people and cut their funding and ban gender studies and so on and so on. Well, the problem, though, is, Andrew... Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.